All right, so we'll be in Jonah chapter 3, in uh, chapter 3, verse 6, and then we're going to go into um, chapter 4 uh, as we've been working through the story of Jonah. Now, growing up, this is how we will start. Growing up, I loved magic. I loved magic. I, I don't know if I wanted to be a magician uh, so much as I felt like a magician. Um, I loved magic, and I remember getting a magic set when I was younger. My parents are here this morning, actually. I don't know if they remember this, but I got a magic set when I was younger. I can't remember. Maybe when I was like 31 or something. I was younger. Um, I got a magic set, and I loved it. I loved I remember being able to make things float. I was about to explain how, but I don't want to give it away for all the kiddos. I remember making things float and just like, just the power, you know, that you wield as a magician of my caliber when people are in front of you just like amazed at like how do you defy gravity and how do you do these things. Um, I loved magic. The fun part of magic is the shock, right? The fun part of magic is uh, the shock because when you're doing a magic trick, you know, the question that people are maybe asking is like, what's in this hand, you know? And a magician's trying to get you to focus on this hand, and, and they're making you ask, whether you realize it or not, what is in that hand? You know, is, there, is the dollar bill still in there, you know, or is the dollar bill that he ate in there somehow? What is in that hand, right? Um, but, but really, the, the shocking part of magic is when, is when a question is answered that you didn't even know was being asked. You know, your direction is, is turned in a way you didn't even realize it was going to happen, right? So it's like, what is in this hand, you know? And it's like, nothing, you know, look in your pocket, you know? And you're like, oh, I didn't even know to ask. I didn't know that's where this was going, you know? How did the goldfish get in my pocket? Whatever. Um, that's the fun part of magic, right? Magic is about, it's about misdirection, you think you're focused on the right thing. You think you're looking in the right direction. And then all of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, you realize, I've been looking in the wrong direction. This, this thing is about something totally different, you know? By the way, when I was thinking through this intro, I was like, how amazing would it be if, like, during this illustration, all of a sudden, I was like, oh, and a bird flew out, you know? But then I was like, you know, no, no, no. This is about Jesus. So... Um, Magic is about misdirection, and the shock comes when something happens that was hidden in plain sight, you know? It was right there the whole time, but you just didn't see it, you know? It's about misdirection. Jonah, the story of Jonah that we've been going through for weeks now, it's, it's a story of misdirection. It's a story of misdirection. You think the question in Jonah, you think the central question in Jonah this whole time is, Will Nineveh, will these, these unbelievers, these just wild sinners, will they receive God's grace? Will they repent and will they believe? And that is no doubt a very important question. It's a very important question in the story of Jonah. But we find, and we're going to find this morning, that, that a turn happens. And almost like hidden in plain sight, we realize, I don't think that was the central question the whole time. I've been asking, will these, will these outside, dirty sinners, will they believe the gospel? Then all of a sudden, Jonah turns to you, and the story turns to me and says, actually, I've got a question 
for you. So stand with me and let's read God's word in our text this morning. Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee, from, to, flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. All right, turn your eyes to chapter 3, verse 6, as we work through this story. To give you a little context for where we're at in the story of Jonah, Jonah is this missionary called by God to go to Nineveh, these, this unbelieving um, country. And from the beginning, Jonah has resisted the call. He has run three times. We are told in this short story that Jonah fled from not Nineveh, but he fled from the presence of God. Very oddly personal. He fled from the presence of God. He fled from the presence of God. We hear it over and over again, but we don't know why. We don't know why Jonah's resisting. We don't know why he would flee from the presence of God, but we just know that's what's been happening. Finally, as we saw two weeks ago, he reaches Nineveh. He gets to Nineveh, he calls them to repent, he calls them out in their sin and their unbelief. And the question that we're really left with two weeks ago in the text, the beginning of chapter three, is will Nineveh, will these unbelievers rely on the word of God, receive the word of God, or are they gonna resist the word of God? Are they gonna reject it? That's the question we're left with. But again, Jonah is a story of misdirection. So here we go, chapter three, verse Six, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The word reaches the king, and he calls for national mourning of their sin. He doesn't want the animals to eat. He's like, I want all the animals to repent as well for whatever they've done, okay? The word cuts him, and he calls for national uh, repentance. In verse 7, it says, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. And the end of what he says, as we just read in verse 8, he says, let them call out mightily to God. He tells the nation, call out to God, call out to the God of Jonah, the God of all creation. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. This is wild, sweeping, perhaps the beginning of wild, sweeping revival. 
Jonah has preached, and this word has run so wild, it has reached the king, the head of the nation, who is saying, yeah, I'm going to preach this word of repentance to the rest of the nation as well. So the king has joined in this mission, and he calls his people, think about this, this is offensive. He calls his people evil. I mean, this is, once he would have said, no, we're not an evil nation. We're just, we're doing the right thing. But he says, no, we are actually evil. Turn from your evil ways. He says that there is violence in your hands. There's violence in our hands that we need to turn from. This is actually would have come across offensive. And let this really sink in of what's going on here. You can imagine this is, you turn on the news tonight or scroll through the news and you see a video of um, the mayor of Las Vegas saying, we need to turn from our greed, our lust. We need to turn. There is evil and violence in our hands and it's time to repent to God. That would be wild. This is turning on the radio and hearing Hitler come over the airways and say, we've got to put a stop to all of it. We have to turn from our evil ways. We have to turn from the violence that is in our hands. That, that would just be utterly shocking, right? This is turning on the news tonight and seeing our president say, hey, emergency, we have to turn. It, 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 it has, I have been cut to the heart. We have to turn from our evil ways. We have to turn from the violence that fills our nation and we have to turn to God and repent to him. This is, this is sweeping, this is wild, what's happening here. And what's incredible is that this happened through Jonah and the king of Nineveh, that he's the one preaching, he's the one calling the nation to repentance. And it's incredible that it happened through Jonah. Remember, Jonah, um, all due respect, is a train wreck of a missionary in this story. I mean, he had to have a fish eat him to get here. And yet look at what's happened. Look at the fruit. The, it, what's incredible is that this happened through, uh, that this happened through Jonah. It, this might be a sub point to the story, but it's a sub point worth noting that we often tie God's power to a person or God's power to a people. We tie his power. He's gonna work so long as um, this person can communicate in a charismatic fashion. You know, he's going to work and people are going to be saved so long as this leader has a charismatic uh, personality. He'll work. I, I wish God would work in my life, but I just don't think I've got the IQ for it. I'm just not as smart as them. I, I, I would love to see God work through my life. I just don't feel as faithful to God as them. So he's probably not going to use me. Whatever it might be, God can't use me because of my sin struggle, my poor communication, my nerves, my dull personality. God can't use me because I'm an introvert. God can't use me because I'm terrified of being alone as an extrovert, whatever it might be. I just don't know that God can. We often tie God's power and what he's going to do to a person. And then the church will often feed into this theology by only platforming people with those qualifications, right? We often will only platform someone if they're a charismatic communicator or a charismatic personality or of a certain IQ level or whatever. 
because maybe little do we know, we think, well, that's God's only kind of uses those kind of people. He doesn't really use train wrecks. The reality is we would never platform Jonah. We would give him 10 minutes to go tell me what is it like being eaten by a fish? You know, that's the only reason I'm interested in having you speak at this conference. Otherwise, nothing about Jonah in this story, and you will see as we end Jonah especially, he would be fired. We wouldn't platform him. And yet revival is breaking out through him. The story of Jonah flips that whole idea on its head, does it not? We realize it's not about Jonah. He's not the savior. It's not his word. And the word isn't about him. God's power is not tied to it either. We learn that it's God's word from God about God and God works in power in his word. And he'll use the king of Nineveh to, to proclaim it and to get people to repentance. This was Luther, Martin Luther, one of the spearheads of the Reformation. This, is what, this was his mentality about himself and about God's word in the Reformation, sweeping revival, unbelievable historical revival. This was his mentality. Listen to what Luther said. He said, what is Luther? What is, who am I? What am I? He says, what is Luther? The teaching is not mine. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? <laughs> so he's talking about how people became known as Lutherans. And he goes, who, I'm a bag of maggots. How are they called Lutherans? How is my evil name attached to the children of God? And this is amazing. He, he goes, what did I do? He says, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank beer with my friends, the word did everything. He goes, what am I? I am nothing. I am worse than nothing. All I did was, was proclaim the word of God. And then when I was napping or drinking beer with my friends, with Amsdorf, he says, the word ran wild and did everything. It's a great mentality to have. The word is doing everything in Nineveh. So take heart, major subpoint. If you are a nobody, it doesn't matter. In fact, if you read the Bible, God prefers that. He prefers that. He prefers to use nobodies so that he is the one that gets put on display. Okay, major subpoint over. The king ends his proclamation like this. Look at verse nine. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The word here in Nineveh to the king has brought an understanding of repentance, faith, and grace. Notice this. He knows they are sinners, we are evil in our ways. We have violence in our hands. We are sinners before God. He knows that God is rightly angry. God is rightly angry with us, fiercely angry. He should be. That's what we deserve. We deserve to die. We deserve to die for our sin. And he knows we have no hope except in God relenting, God being gracious. He doesn't say, quick, everybody, go to church, read your Bible consistently, and say a couple prayers, and then God will maybe, will earn his acceptance. He just says, we are sinners, God is angry, who knows, maybe he will relent. Maybe he will have mercy on us, because that will be in his pleasure. And sure enough, in verse 10, look, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster 
that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Sure enough, there's grace and mercy, even for Nineveh. Sure enough, there's grace and mercy that's enough for the greatest of sinners. God's grace outruns all sin. Our sin and our unworthiness does not hold a candle to his grace. Whoever it is, whatever city it is, whatever nation, God's grace is enough for them. Wonder of wonders, God's grace is enough for Waco. Wonder of wonders, God's grace is enough for this little church and for you and for your family and for your spouse and for your friends and for your kids. This right here is where we expect the story to end. I mean, think about this. We expect Jonah to close shop. The story's over, right? Nineveh's repenting. They're relying on the word of God. God has given grace and mercy. He's not gonna overthrow the city. And, and surely the last verse is gonna be that. And then Jonah killed the fattened calf and he threw a huge party, right? He is just happy as he can be. This started bad. The fish thing was terrible. That's behind me. Everyone's repenting. Let's have a great time together. Let's party. Let's celebrate. And it would be, that would be the end if the story wasn't a story of misdirection. Because right when we think that all is right, everything's right. If we just stop there, everything's at peace. Everything's good. Right there, Jonah goes, hold my beer. Chapter four, verse one. But all of this displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What? Let that sink in. That makes no sense. That makes no sense. You are a missionary preaching the grace and mercy of God for sinners. Sinners are repenting, and you're mad. You're angry about it. You don't like it. That makes no sense. How is this possible? Thankfully, Jonah tells us exactly why he's mad. Verse two, and he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was, when I was yet in my country? That that is why I made haste to flee. For I knew, I knew you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. We get to the heart of the story right here. I knew it, God. I knew you are a gracious and merciful God. I knew that your grace was enough for these outside, on the fringe, unbelievers, these sinners. Why is Jonah resisting? Why has he been fleeing from the presence of God, from God himself? Because God is a God of grace for sinners, as crazy as that sounds. He just told us right there. The king of Nineveh asked, do you remember? Who knows? Who knows? Maybe God will relent. Maybe God will have mercy on us. You wanna know who knows? Jonah says, I knew. I knew you were like this. I knew you would save people. How dare you? I knew you'd accept the prodigal home. I knew it. I knew, I knew when my, remember the prodigal story he said? I knew when my rebellious younger brother came home, you'd throw a party. Right? Jonah knows his Bible. He quotes the core Old Testament understanding of who God is, how God revealed himself, that you're a God, a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He knows the Bible. He knows the character of God. And right here, he says, I don't like it. He doesn't like it. He's like that older brother. He is angry that God would be gracious and merciful. He is so angry that he says, just kill me now. 
Look at verse three. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah here took so much pleasure in the thought of Nineveh being judged and doomed that he would have rather died than watch them be saved. Just kill me now as, as, so I don't have to watch you be so gracious and so merciful to these sinners. He would have rather died than see them saved. And at this point, we go, you and I this morning, we go, what in the world is going on? Like, what am I witnessing? What am I reading here? This is so weird. Right now we might go, I can't fathom this mentality that Jonah has. I can't fathom having that mentality. But here's the thing. Jonah was written precisely because we couldn't relate more. Jonah was written because you and I could not relate more to Jonah right here. Imagine this, just imagine your worst enemy. Imagine that person that you pretend not to hate, you know, but you should confess to God that you do. Imagine that person. Um, imagine, you know, horrible figures in, in history. You know, Hitler's an easy one. I want you to imagine that I said right now, Hitler is in heaven and he is in supreme joy and peace in the presence of God. And imagine I said that because there's this document we found that on his deathbed, he repented. On his deathbed, he repented of all of his sin and all that he did and all that he let out. He repented and he believed in Jesus, grace alone, Christ alone, through faith alone, to God's glory alone, according to God's word alone. He repented. And imagine I told you that right now he is in supreme joy, supreme peace in the presence of God. Do you feel that little bit of anger? Do you feel that little bit of, I hope not. That little bit of, I hope you're wrong, Colin. I hope he didn't repent on his deathbed. I hope he got what he had coming. You're so much like Jonah. I'm so much like Jonah. Because you know what we're saying there, right? What we are saying there is, God, how dare you? How dare you save Hitler at the last minute? That's what we're saying. We are saying, God, I knew it. I knew you were so gracious, you were so merciful, you were so loving that you could forgive even someone like Hitler. You feel that little anger, you feel that frustration. Jonah was written precisely because you and I couldn't relate more with Jonah here. Now, here's the question, where does that come from? Where does that, where does that anger come from? I don't want you to be that gracious, God. I don't want you to be that merciful. Where does that come from? Because we know you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, we're Christians, we know, we know grace. We know John 3, 16. We know Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved. So where does that come from? Where does that craziness come from? That we would have a problem with God's grace. Where does it come from? It comes from our deeply ingrained love for workspace righteousness. Our deeply ingrained love to live up to God's law and prove that we're worthy of his love. That's where it comes from. The reason you and I want God to withhold grace from others is because we think we'll be okay if he withholds it from us. That's where it comes from. 
If I'm okay, if I want God to withhold grace and mercy from someone, it's because I think deep down, if he withholds it from me in that area, I'm fine, I'm good, I don't need it. That's where it comes from. Where I forgive little, it's because I think I've been forgiven little. I don't need forgiveness that much, so I'm not gonna give it out that much. At least that's what Jesus taught. We don't realize how much grace we have received and how much grace we still need. This is the misdirection of Jonah right here. Uh, as we are wondering if the unbelievers will rely on the grace of God, the story turns to you and me and says, are you still relying on the grace of God? The story turns to Jonah. And it's gonna get intense as we end the book in a couple weeks. The story turns to Jonah and says, Jonah, are you still relying on the grace of God? Do you realize how much grace you've received? Do you see how much grace you still need? Do you realize it and do you see it? So where do we go from here? When you realize and I realize that relying on the grace of God is so much harder than we realize, when, uh, when we realize that, that it's hard, where do we go? This is where we go. We go where God goes. We go where God goes, back to grace again. Look at verse four in chapter four. Look at how God responds to Jonah. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry, Jonah? I love this. Jonah, consider, Jonah, does your anger make any sense? Jonah, does your anger make any sense theologically? Jonah, experientially, think back to the whole fish thing. Does your anger make any sense that other people would need grace, fish guy? Jonah, does it make sense that you're angry right now? Consider it. Ultimately, this question is asking, does it make sense that you would want me to withhold grace from anyone else? The question is saying, consider the grace of God, Jonah. Consider my grace for you. Consider my mercy for you. Consider how much I love you. Consider that, Jonah. Redeemer, consider the grace of God again this morning, today, right now. Consider how much grace you've received. Consider how much mercy you still need and how much mercy and grace you will continue to need. We sang it already, right? Prone to wonder. We think I'm prone to wonder from obedience to God's law, and we are. But we're also prone deeply to wonder from the gospel. Prone to wonder from the grace of God. Luther said this, the article of justification must be sounded in our ears incessantly because the frailty of our flesh will not permit us to take hold of it perfectly and to believe it with all our heart. In actual living, so he says, he says there's, there's the work of the mind. You can sit and read the gospel and understand it clearly. But then he says, in actual living, it's not so easy to persuade oneself that by grace alone, in opposition to every other means, we obtain the forgiveness of our sins and peace with God. I know the gospel. I can say it. I can explain it. I can quote verses. Yeah, Jonah, Jonah did as well. But in actual living, you and I find, don't we? It's not so easy to always persuade ourselves. It really is by grace alone. I really haven't earned this. I haven't earned it any more than Hitler. It's gotta be free or I don't get any. That's the hard work of Christianity. That's the hard work of the Christian life, persuading yourself again and again and again. It's grace alone, it's mercy alone, and it's free. God's response to Jonah is to remind him of grace again 
and to give him grace again. Grace that covers even his rebellion against it. Grace that covers even your resistance to it and my doubting of it and my resistance to it so that we can pray, Lord, forgive me for not liking your grace sometimes. Deep down, forgive me. So where do we go from here? We go back to the gospel. We go back to the gospel again and again and again. Jonah looked at a city of about 120,000 people lost in their sin, like sheep without a shepherd, and he had no compassion. He had no compassion. But then Jesus shows up, and this is what we read of Jesus. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jonah looks on this huge city. He has no compassion. And then Jesus shows up and he looks on a city of unbelievers like sheep without a shepherd, lost, and he is moved to the core of who he is in compassion for them. Jonah took so much pleasure in sinners being punished here that he would have rather died than to watch them be saved. Jesus shows up and he takes so much pleasure in sinners being forgiven that he was willing to die to make it happen. Take my life from me if it means they'll be saved. That's the compassion and the work of Jesus. God takes so much pleasure in you knowing that you're forgiven, that he will continually remind you of it sermon after sermon, Bible story after Bible story, verse after verse, communion after communion, because he knows that we're prone to wonder. And so he's gonna do it again and again and again. He's gonna draw you back to grace and to mercy. Let's pray.